The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'd like to share uh, some thoughts and reflections tonight about an aspect of my own practice that's been very meaningful for me over the years. Um, from the very beginning, and um, that con- continues to be a rich area of exploration. Uh, with with the hope that um, if it's not already a part of your practice, that it might uh, stimulate some interest and inspiration in including it in your practice in some way, either very intentionally and consciously uh, or, uh, or in any way that feels appropriate to you. And uh, this is an aspect of our practice that's present for, for all of us every day in our lives. Um, when we're with others uh, and even when we're alone, and it's not our breath, it's not our body, although it includes and depends on both of those. Uh, so what I'd like to talk about tonight is speech and uh, communication. And I'd like to offer some ideas about uh, why I see it as such a potent area for, for exploration uh, and how it can be an integral part of our spiritual path. Maybe to begin, I'll just, I'll just share briefly about how, for me, it, it came into my practice. Uh, I sat a retreat with uh, the Zen master, poet, and activist Thich Nhat Hanh in the late 90s. And at the end of his retreats, he offers an opportunity to formally undertake the five precepts, the five mindfulness trainings, as he refers to them. And uh, I was in my early 20s, and the one precept that spoke to me as something that I really felt like I could get behind 100% and actually make a sincere effort to do Um, was the fourth precept, the fourth training around speech. And I want to read to you the way that he languages it in uh, in modern modern terms for our time today. And just listen and take it in. Many of you probably have heard or read this before, but if you you have or if you haven't, to just see what the effect is of of this, this vision of the role that speech and communication can have in our life. So he writes... Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering. I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I'm determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I'm not sure. I'll refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord or words that can cause the family or the community to break. 
I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Thorough, right? All-encompassing. And, you know, I get chills every time I read it. it the, the force of the vision of that kind of integrity and commitment is so powerful and inspiring to me. I said, I want to follow that. I, you know, I want to take that on in my life. And several years later, I was working as a cook at one of the lay meditation centers and I, I felt the gap in my practice between the values that were causing me to meditate and study and read and my, some of my relationships in my life and my interactions. And I wanted to bridge that gap. I felt like, you know, if what I'm doing in silence isn't coming out into my life and into my words and my relationships, what's the point, you know? And I was very fortunate to come across the work of Marshall Rosenberg in Nonviolent Communication, and, and several others locally in that area in Massachusetts who were teaching and training in communication. And that started this, this process of, of studying and learning and integrating my Dharma practice with um, mindful speech, wise speech, and communication training. So I want to um, reflect a little bit on what is speech and communication I'm not a linguist or a philologist, so this isn't going to be some sort of technical or exhaustive definition, but more of a reflective definition, a working definition. So at the grossest level, our speech is about what we say, right, externally. As we heard in the languaging of the fourth precept by Thich Nhat Hanh, it's also about listening, right? Um, Internally, it includes how we speak to ourselves, right? So our speech has an internal aspect in terms of our discursive thinking, the language, the words that we use in our own mind. And that's an important connection that uh, we'll explore a little bit later. Communication itself is obviously much broader than language and words. There's body language, touch, facial expression, emotion. And yet primarily... Uh, for most of us, words and speech remain sort of a central medium for connecting and interfacing with one another. And for me, when I reflect on it, I just see it's, it's really one of the primary ways for contact with other human beings, right? And because of that, it's such a powerful field. It's such a potent area. If anyone here has done a long retreat, a silent retreat, or even for a day or two, been in silence, it changes the way we, we relate to speech, right? We notice it much more. And, and the longer one spends in silence to the place where you actually start to have an inner silence in the mind, the more the, the mystery and the magic of this capacity starts to reveal itself, just how amazing it is. That, that we have developed as creatures this capacity to form words, to express and transmit meaning and emotion, right? It's, it's amazing to me. 
And if anyone has ever had the experience of being in silence in a different way in which we feel silenced, our voice is not heard in some way emotionally or because of the power dynamics or culturally. We know how painful that can be when we don't have access to that contact, to that understanding, to that expression. And we can also reflect on the, the immense amount of beauty and creation that's come through language and words, poetry and literature and theater. Um, and the very power that words can carry, again, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, right? That our language and our words, our expression, has this power to touch, to move and uplift one another, to provide the, um, the bridge for feeling loved and seen and understood, and the great harm that can come when our words are coming out of ignorance or anger or blame or confusion, you know, how we can hurt and wound one another, how we've been alienated just by a phrase or a word, and how words can be used to manipulate, to coerce, to oppress, to, to create and form concepts that lead to um, massive political oppression and genocide. It doesn't originate in the words, but the words become a vehicle. It becomes a medium for the actualization and transmission of those very disturbed and confused energies in the heart and humanity. So we begin to see that speech is much more than words. There's a somatic element to speech, our embodied experience. Gary Snyder writes, it's quite clear that the primary existence of language, tongue, is in the event, the utterance. Language is not a carving as of writing. It's a curl of breath, a breeze in the pines. There's this organic nature to speech and language. It's the music, right? The rhythm, the tone. There's an emotional a- aspect to our speech and communication at the level of the heart. And there's the cognitive element, the meaning, the concepts at the mental level. And as we begin to explore that, we start to see how language in the form of thought and concepts mediates our experience with the world, with one another, and to a certain degree begins to structure it. So even already, just sort of you know, reflecting on what is speech, language, communication, what can it do, I I see a lot of benefits. Appreciating the richness and the diversity of speech and all of its manifestations and functions and roles in our individual lives, its power and potency for good or for ill. And this kind of contemplation, just looking at this aspect of human experience can give rise to a lot of wholesome qualities, to mindfulness, when we recognize the potency and power of, uh, of this phenomenon, 
we, we begin to treat it with more care, with more attention. Investigation and curiosity arises. What is this really? How do I use it? How does it affect me? And then care and concern, sensitivity to our words. So I want to turn now to the question of um, where does this occur in the Buddha's teachings? Speech and language, communication. And it actually holds a very prominent role, very prominent place. I see it present in two ways. Uh, First, as an essential foundation for the path, and also as a practice in and of itself that can support and lead to liberation. So I want to talk a little bit about both of these. So how is practicing with speech uh, a foundation for the path? So the Buddha taught a gradual path, and he taught a holistic path. It's, it's a complete way of living. It's not just about getting quiet and meditating, right? Uh, when you look at some of the, some of the texts and the teachings, Um, There's this gradual training that the Buddha always lays out. And the foundation of that training is developing a relational sensitivity. When you look at the teachings on dana, on generosity, and then on sila, on ethics, virtue, these these are based in the relational realm. So the Buddha begins inviting us to look at how do we relate to one another, what does it feel like to give? What does it feel like to harm? And what does it feel like to not harm? So the foundation is relational, is developing a sensitivity to the presence of others in our connection. And the primary principle there is one of non-harming. So through this kind of sensitivity, Uh, the insight can develop, if it's not already present, into cause and effect. We see that our actions matter, that what we think, what we say, what we do has real impacts on ourselves and on others. We affect one another. And in a very real way, we all have to live out the results of our actions. The decisions we make, will place us in in certain situations. The people we choose to spend time with, you know, we we will then physically and emotionally be in relationship in that way. The thoughts and emotions we cultivate, we we will live with those tendencies, with those energies. So we begin to see as we as we investigate, what is it like to relate to you? What is it like to give? What is it like to attune to the ethical dimension? and the results of my actions, then we start to key into this this principle of cause and effect more. So along these lines, and just back up a moment, so the Buddha understood that the more we're keyed in in this way and the more... uh, there's a sense of integrity and clarity in our relationships and our actions, the more calm and peaceful the mind will be, the happier the mind will be, naturally, naturally. 
And then from that place of calm and happiness, of just living a good life, living a wholesome life, being in integrity, the mind can concentrate. The mind can settle and begin to really consider things. I mean, just look at this on a very mundane level. When you've ever tried to think something through, if your mind is disturbed by something that's happened, some fight you had, some issue or problem, it's very difficult to actually really consider something carefully, deliberately, and think something through that's important, right? That's it right there. It's just a very natural quality of the human organism because we're hardwired for relationship and connection that we feel things. So the Buddha is saying, notice that. Let it be true. You know, let it be harmonious so that the mind isn't disturbed by regret, by sorrow, by confusion, by agitation, and can actually begin to consider more deeply uh, meaningful questions of life. So along those lines, we find teachings on speech in in several key places. Uh, There's a teaching on the three doors of action, body, speech, and, and heart, the, the heart level, the intentions and meanings we create. So, and the Buddha pointed to these as saying, you know, these are the primary areas with which we create karma, with which we create um, strong intentional energies that will bear results in our life. And one of those three is the, the speech-thought faculty, the way it's, it's described in the suttas, Uh, suggests that it includes discursive thought. It's not just speech. So it's it's one of the primary ways we make karma. Very powerful. And then it's included in the ethical precepts. The fourth precept, as we started with, is around how we use our words. I often like to to point out that, so there are five... Uh, precepts, right? Don't kill, don't steal, don't cause harm with your sexual energy. Use your words wisely and kindly and gently and then don't, don't uh, take intoxicants that make you do all those other things, <laughs> right? So when we look at those and then we compare them to the Eightfold Path, we see that um, of the four that have to do with ethical action, the first four, the first three of those get lumped into right action. Right speech has its own place in the Eightfold Path. That says something to me. That one precept gets singled out and given a whole place within the Eightfold Path training of virtue, concentration, and wisdom. When you look at the monastic code, um, Many, 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 many of the monks' rules are just about speech, much more refined levels of speech. One of the four parajikas, the offenses um, through which if a monk commits this offense, um, the monk or the nun is automatically no longer considered ordained. For life, they can never ordain again. One of those four has to do with speech. So it clearly holds an important place within the teachings on that level. So just very briefly, because I'm, I'm guessing that many of you are familiar with the Buddha's specific teachings on wise speech, uh, 
what he points to and offers is he def- the right speech or wise speech is defined as not lying, so not telling false, not using false speech, not using divisive speech, not using abusive or harsh speech, and not engaging in meaningless idle talk that depletes our energy and just leads to fragmentation. So it's that teaching that Thich Nhat Hanh based his interpretation on for the modern day. So for our own practice, if this is speaking to you, if this is inspiring you, you can just take one of those trainings, like truthfulness, not lying, and really, really practice with it for one day, for a week, and just say, let me look at everything I say and really question, is this true? Is there truth in this? Right? And it can get quite refined. We begin to see the subtle ways that we maybe manipulate or leave something out to get a better position or advantage. We start to see the ways in which our projections and judgments, uh, we, we take them for reality when we don't know that they're actually true. That's a form of not being truthful. It's not, maybe not intentionally lying, but when we really take that one aspect of wise speech and practice with it deeply, a lot is revealed. And we can do the same with each of the other ones. Divisive speech. Um, one practice that I've done, that others have done, is to take a period of time and make a strong determination to not speak about anyone who's not present. Just as a practice. Not because there's anything wrong with that, but just to see what is that like and how often do we talk about others for ill or, or, or for good who are not here. Right? So then the Buddha also said in the positive, you know, what is wholesome speech? What is um, beneficial speech, good speech, wise speech? He said, um, wise speech is speech that is endowed with five qualities. It's true. It's spoken at the right time. It's spoken affectionately and with a mind of goodwill. And it's spoken beneficially spoken with the intention to help. And again, we can practice with these. We can just take that structure and choose one or several and use it as a template for reflection. My dear friend and colleague, Donald Rothberg, with whom I teach sometimes, um, talks about these can sort of be condensed into four. You say true, timely, affectionate, beneficial. And he said he would have that by his phone, and every time the phone would ring before he picked up, he would just say, true, timely, useful, goodwill. Or he'd write them on a card at meetings and just have it in front of his, and at any time before he spoke, he would just look at it and check. And when we do that, when we actually practice in that kind of systematic way, it becomes second nature. It begins to transform how we evaluate what we say. So I said that this, this taking speech as a practice, it's a foundation, and then it also can support and lead to liberation itself. So everything I've been speaking about so far, this is the relative level of the teachings. It deals with living our daily lives in the, in the conventional realm in which my name is Nyaniko Oren, and I don't know your name, but we each, you know, got here at a certain time and so forth, this relative level in which we have roles and responsibilities and days of the week and times. And it's important. 
And when, uh, when we realize that our speech has an effect on our own well-being and the well-being of others, then we try to make it clear and honest and beautiful. And that has an effect. It uplifts the heart. We live with a certain kind of a dignity and a quality of peacefulness. But we don't just stop there because that's not liberation. That's just having a slightly better life, which is good in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with that. But if what you're interested in is releasing your heart and waking up and knowing clearly and deeply what it is to be human as much as possible, which is what I'm interested in, challenging yourself, we don't stop there. We have to actually look to the more liberating level of truth, the more ultimate level of truth. And so as we investigate and observe this process of cause and effect and relationship, we start to see that not only can the mind be known, we can see what's happening, not only can it be shaped and trained in a certain direction, but that it can be released, that it can be liberated from its habits and its patterns and ultimately from its delusion, from its uh, addiction to self-centeredness. So how does speech help? How does speech work in this way? The more we begin to to look closely, investigate and examine our speech, our communication, the more the reciprocal relationship between thought and speech and our experience of life is revealed. We start to see how our thoughts create the world how our speech habits and thought patterns play a role in how we structure reality, how we perceive things, and thus how we experience ourselves and the the very fact of being alive. So the more we start to see this, the more freedom we can begin to experience in relation to concepts, in relation to our thoughts, the more we start to understand the limitations and the the function and the limitations of speech and language, the usefulness of it and where it stops being useful, and the more an awareness that's not bound by conceptual thought can be known, touched, and grow. So just as the breath functions as a bridge between the mind and the body, our speech and the corollary internal dialogue that happens functions as an interface between the personal, the relative reality, and this more universal or ultimate level of experience. So when we practice with speech, this it's so rich. It opens up um, a whole realm of, of insight into the relative aspects of our personality. There can be deep growth and and maturing through speech because so much of our conditioning lies in our words and our relationships. But then we also, through that, because so much of our sense of self is bound up and created through language and speech and relationship, as as we begin to penetrate it, we begin to develop insight into the very ways we create a sense of self how our words, our thoughts, our speech perpetuate us getting caught in obsessions and preoccupations. And the more we see that, the more 
the mind can be released, the heart can be released from its confusions and its hang-ups. So I've pointed to uh, just a few ways that one can practice with speech by taking the, the templates of the Buddha's teachings themselves. And I'll just, I'll just mention briefly some other um, possible avenues of exploration. We don't have time to actually go into those tonight, but hopefully, if you're interested, you can take those and pursue them further. Um, so one is simply working with noticing speech and silence. Notice when we speak and why. Notice when we're silent. In conversations, notice the silence as well as the words. Just tuning into that can be a profound practice. And we can begin to develop a little bit of the muscle of restraint to sometimes not say certain things, which can lead to great benefit. Notice we can work with the intention to speak, noticing where we're coming from, just reflecting before we speak. What's my motivation here? Is it about being seen in some way? You know? Is it about contributing? Is it about being heard or understood? Not that there's some right or wrong, but just again, for the very sake of of knowledge and self-understanding so that we see what's actually going on here and then can begin to have more choice and insight into that process. There are many passages in the suttas and the teachings that we can take and use for reflection. I'll read just one, which I love. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha is purported to have said, They blame one who remains silent. They blame one who speaks much. They blame one who speaks in moderation. There is no one in this world who is not blamed. That's liberating, you know? You really reflect on it. Next time someone blames you, remember that. You know? Like the colloquial is damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? That's it, you know? To not take it so personally, to just recognize this is what it's like to be in the human realm. So there are many other passages like that that we can take and just reflect on and call to mind, memorize and use in our daily life. Uh, we, can, we can cultivate skill with our expression and our listening, uh, both in terms of navigating conflict and difference, but also in terms of developing the capacity to use words to enhance the richness and beauty of human life, to, to really be able to open the heart and genuinely, thoroughly, clearly express love and appreciation. I mean, that's, it's a gift that we can give one another, and it's a skill that we can develop if it's not already there. You know, how to actually tune in to the wholesomeness in our heart and give voice to it and share it with one another. To let the people in our lives that we know, to let the people we love in our lives really know deeply that we love them. To really fully express our gratitude in a way that can be received and taken in. Right? To mind the depths of this ability we have to communicate And then there's a whole range, a whole host of complementary modalities that we can incorporate and include in our practice, developing uh, tools of relational awareness, 
how to practice mindfulness, as it said, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. There's a beautiful practice called Insight Dialogue that Greg Kramer teaches and many others now, uh, which focuses on the lived aspect of bringing sati and mindfulness to dialogue and listening to investigate and develop insight. There's also um, nonviolent communication and some of the work that I do integrating uh, somatics and embodied awareness with the tools of Dharma practice and the concepts and uh, frames and forms of nonviolent communication and bringing those together to develop speech as as a, a rich and fertile ground for our practice. So I'll stop there and, and offer that for your reflection. Um, anything that's not useful, don't worry about, just leave it aside. And what is helpful or useful, you know, please take and, and continue to practice with and reflect on. So thank you for your attention and listening. Um,